have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner I'm so fortunate to have as my guest today Joe Valentine. Joe was the first Australian Green Party senator. She brought principled action to Australia's federal Senate, earning her the scorn of many business-as-usual politicians, served as advocate and voice in Australia's parliament for a number of progressive issues for eight years. Joe grew up Catholic in a conservative family, deeply absorbing Catholic teachings of compassion and care for the poor. While traveling extensively as a young adult, Joe witnessed masses of poor people held down by the religious, economic, and political limitations, and began a transition away from conservative doctrines. Joe has been active with the Friends Quaker Meeting in Perth, Western Australia, since 1972. Joe's first election to the Senate was as part of the Nuclear Disarmament Party, but national coalition building led to the national establishment of the Green Party in Australia. I interviewed Joe Valentine on February 14, 2006, in the course of my three-week visit to Australia with the Friendly Folk Dancers. I'm here today interviewing Joe Valentine. She's a former member of the Federal Parliament of Australia, we're sitting here on the Cappuccino Strip in Fremantle, which is a suburb neighboring on Perth in Western Australia. Welcome today, Joe. Thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. Hi, Mark. 
I've had some chance to get to know you over the last couple of days. When I heard that you were the first representative of the Green Party in the Australian Federal Parliament, I was pretty impressed to be friends with the first one. Well, it's a while ago now, and I guess it was history-making. There's no doubt about that. But I look back on it now, and I think, was that really me? Did I do all those things, you know? So it's a bit like another lifetime for me now, because it's 15 years since I was actually in the Parliament, and I was there for eight years. So putting that into perspective over a life that's now nearly 60 years long, you know, it just seems like a little job I did for a while there, and I did my best in it, but it wasn't going to be forever. I never had any ambition to have a career, as it were, in politics that was not ever on my agenda. I'm sure that most of our listeners from the USA have very little idea of what the governmental structure is here in Australia. I believe that the federal parliament of Australia has two houses, a Senate and House of Representatives, like the USA. I think there are 76 senators and 145 representatives in the House of Representatives. You served in the Senate, didn't you? That's right, yes. I was one of 12 senators from this state. Each state has 12 senators. And so the terms are three years or six years. And I got elected three times, actually, for two three-year terms. And then the third time I got elected, it was for a six-year term. And that felt a bit like a prison sentence, so I didn't actually finish it. You were first elected in 1984 as a representative not of the Green Party but of the Nuclear Disarmament Party. How did that come about and what was that about? Well, it was a sign of the times, really. Ronald Reagan, the President of the United States, was running around at that point when he thought the microphone was off saying, let's nuke the Ruskies, and Greenham Common and other places in the UK were bristling with the new weapons at that time, uh, cruise missiles, which could go a very long way at low altitudes, and I think there was a genuine fear that we were about to blow ourselves up. People were very, very scared. So the time was right for a single-issue party to come onto the Australian political agenda. And as far as I know, it's the only one anywhere where somebody got elected to a federal national parliament on that single issue of nuclear disarmament. But it was one of many, many actions that were happening globally saying, you know, stop, we don't want this annihilation to happen. So I guess I was just part of a whole movement. It seemed like something very new at the time in 1984, but in fact, because I'd been involved already for six or eight years in the anti-war and anti-nuclear movement at that stage, I knew that it was based on a lot of hard work by a lot of groups that came together then to actually support candidates around Australia to have a go for the Senate. Come gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing Writers and critics who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming Was the loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing
senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside region will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times they are changing. Mothers and fathers throughout the land, and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. For、oh, the times they are changing. The curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast as the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last. For the times they are changing. And because we've got a preferential voting system, it means that outsiders have got just a chance, you know, of getting a foot in that door and sitting on one of those red leather seats, which, of course, the major parties do not like. They want to have total control of their Senate. But then an outsider like me, I just squeaked in the door, and they did not like it. Can you explain a little bit how the representatives are chosen? You are one of twelve senators elected from Western Australia. How did you get in? How does that voting take place?、Uh, is it that you represent a district like we do in the United States, and you have to get fifty percent of the vote? Well, no. For the Senate, you represent the whole state. So these twelve senators cover the whole state. So anybody, actually, as long as they're an Australian citizen and they haven't got a criminal record for anything too dreadful, they can put their name forward. And as long as they can come up with the requisite amount of money to register, which is several hundred dollars, so it weeds out people who are just doing it for fun. And preferably, you need to have a group behind you, but that's not essential. So, in the first instance, I just had a movement of people behind me who got really busy with the campaign. We put up the money to register, and then we worked like crazy. And there was my name on the ballot paper. In fact, there was the name of the Nuclear Disarmament Party on the ballot paper. And we have a rather strange voting system here, where there's a big line that separates the block votes from the individual votes. Our Senate ballot paper is very big. There might be over a hundred candidates for these twelve positions representing the major parties. Each major party usually has a list of five or six senator hopefuls, so that if you're an independent or you haven't got a party, you don't get a spot in the block vote above the line. And because Australians are a bit lazy about voting, and because it's compulsory, a lot of people like to go into the ballot. Box and they just put one tick in the box and then they follow. That is assumed that their vote follows the line of that particular party. So we had to work very hard to make sure that we had people educated enough to fill in the whole ballot paper and say we want 
this person representing the nuclear disarmament issue to actually be in the Senate for us. So it was quite a coup. I mean, it doesn't sound like very many people, but 52,000 people voted Valentine 1. There was more people than we expected. We had all the ballot boxes covered, nearly all in the whole state. We had people there on Election Day handing out material saying, here's an opportunity to say to our government, we don't want to just follow the United States line, which could take us into nuclear war. That's what people felt afraid of. And at that stage, we have American warships visiting often, and we still do, full of sailors disgorging into this very port. This is their most favourite port in the whole world for R&R, and you know, that's unless they're back home in their home bases. They love Fremantle-friendly, good weather, nice beaches, etc., etc. So we had this constant reminder that we're very linked into the American military machine. We've got Pine Gap, a huge military base, secret, 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 in the middle of our desert, which feeds stuff back into the whole United States satellite network, which is like a huge vacuum cleaner sucking up information about everybody and everything everywhere. And through that base, they then formulate their ideas about where they're going to bomb. We also had other bases like the Northwest Cape Naval Base through which orders could be issued to launch nuclear weapons. So we felt really enmeshed in it, and a lot of people didn't like that. So all around the country there were nuclear disarmament party candidates but in fact I was the only one who managed to get a big enough percentage of the vote and enough preferences coming in the direction of the nuclear disarmament party from the other major parties who didn't really see me coming and I squeaked in. Peace is the bread we break Love is the river rolling Life is a chance we take when we make this earth our home, gonna make this earth our home. Feel the cool breeze blowing through the smoke and the heat. Hear the gentle voices and the marching feet. Singing, call back the fire, draw the missiles down. And we'll call this earth our home. Pieces, pieces, the bread we break, love Love is the river all and life is a chance we take when we make this earth our home. Gonna make this earth our home. Once you got the melody down, feel free to try some harmony. And don't be afraid of harmony. Harmony is any note that your neighbor isn't singing. We have known the atom. The power and pain We've seen people fall beneath the killing rain If the mind still reasons and the soul remains It shall never be again Peace is the bread we break Love is, love is the river all in Life is a chance we take When we make this earth our home Gonna make this earth our home Peace grows from a tiny seed As the acorn grows into the tallest tree Many years ago I heard a soldier say When people want peace, better get out of the way Love is the river all and life is 
chance we take when we make this earth our home. Gonna make this earth our home. When you said that voting is compulsory, what did you mean by that? Well, you get fined. If you're on the electoral roll and you don't vote, you get fined. Not a lot, but, you know, you've really got to be accountable. The government will write to you and say, where were you on voting day and why didn't you vote? And here's your fine of $20. So most people will go and vote if they're on the electoral roll. So you can choose not to be on the electoral roll. That's okay. But most people somehow or other get onto the electoral roll and then they're obliged to vote. Or you can go into the ballot box and do what we call a donkey vote. You know, or just not fill in the paper. Just re- you can go in, get your name checked off, and then fill in an informal vote, it's called. Or you just go straight down the line without any choice about the political consequences of your vote. So you can sort of do a non-vote, if you like. But most people actually show up on Election Day. Are you saying that there's near 100% voting by the adult populace? That's right. It's certainly it's about 87%. And so the rest are people who've chosen not to go on the roll or who think, well, bugger it, you know, I'll get the fine, or they're overseas or you know, something like that. So you can put in a good case. You can say that you were more than, uh, I think it's uh, 60 kilometres or something like that from a polling booth and then you don't have to vote. But they go out into the remote Aboriginal communities and so on days before the helicopters drop off the ballot boxes. And it's, it's a very thorough coverage, you know. You really have to work quite hard to be not found on voting day. To go back to something I should have said before, this whole business about the preferences is uh, really crucial in the outcomes of our elections, particularly in the upper house, because if the candidate of your first choice doesn't get enough votes to get a percentage above the line, then the votes are transferred to the next one down. So because the opposition or the main major parties didn't really see me as a threat, I got the preferences allocated from a number of groups. So I got in where somebody in another state, the rock singer Peter Garrett from Midnight Oil, that some of your listeners might have heard about because Midnight Oil was pretty strong in the States, he got 9% of the vote. I got 6.3% of the vote. I got in and he didn't. So it's a little bit like that. So I was often called the accidental senator. And I quite liked that label because I never really meant to be a senator. But once I got in there, I gave it my best shot. Joe, when did you become part of the Green Party, or when did your designation officially become Green Party? Well, that didn't really happen until 1990, and a lot of water went under the bridge between 84 and 90. So I was an independent for quite a long time, still working on the same issues. I don't uh, feel as though I let anybody down in terms of working on the issues that I'd been voted in to represent, but the issues became wider and wider because originally the platform was just no nuclear warship visits, no uranium mining, because that's our big contribution in Australia to the nuclear arms race, and no foreign bases on Australian soil. So that was the policy for the first election, very narrow, single issue. By the second election in 1987, people saying, we want you to work on more things. We want you to work on Aboriginal issues. We want you to work on the environmental issues. We want you to work on social justice issues. So gradually, the platform that I was working on became expanded and expanded and expanded, and I'm still only one person in there all by myself trying to deal with all of these issues with a very small staff. So it became really clearer and clearer to me that we needed a network, we needed a base, so we set about forming the Greens Party. And there had been one in Tasmania, And there had been a couple of efforts, but they hadn't really quite come to anything. So in 1990, we launched the Greens in WA, and then later on it became Australia-wide. And now there are four Australian Green senators in the parliament, one of whom is from Western Australia. 
So I'm really pleased about that. Have you been a lifelong political activist? Well, I've always been interested in politics, I guess, but I never thought I'd sort of go anywhere with it. In fact, I never joined the Labour Party, which would have been my closest inclination. And actually, in 1984, when they turned from being an anti-Uranium mining party into a pro-Uranium mining party in this country, which is the thing that got a lot of people enraged, actually, so they joined the Nuclear Disarmament Party. But I often wished that I had been a member so that I could tear up, burn my membership card, but I never had that pleasure. So that was my general tendency, but I came from a very conservative family. In fact, my grandfather was in the parliament in Western Australia for 33 years as an independent, but a very conservative independent who was way ahead of his time with some ideas he had like desalination and capturing the tides and so on, things that are still being talked about now. And so I'd grown up with the idea that, you know, politics was... uh, you know, worth talking about, certainly. But my parents, a kind of a generation had been missed. My father was not the least bit interested. He was a sportsman. And my mother had worked very hard for her father in her younger day in political circles and then wanted nothing more to do with it. So, in fact, I didn't grow up with people encouraging me to go into politics or anything like that. But I did have a Catholic education. And in the Catholic school system here, we figured out in activist circles that you get a pretty good dose of social justice. Now, might be with the Bible in one hand and the aid in another hand but I was very aware of haves and have nots when I was growing up because of my Loretto education so I'm very grateful that I had that so there was an awareness that everything wasn't right for me from well before I left high school you said you went to Catholic school how long did that go through all the way through your graduation from high school Yes, I went to a Catholic school all my life until I got a scholarship to go to the United States, actually. Then I was an AFS student for a year in Illinois, and that was no Catholic school, and I had a ball. It was just such fun. What year was that that you were in the USA? It was 1963-64, and so I happened to be there when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I remember the day well, as everybody who lived in the United States at that time did, exactly where you were when you heard the news and so on, because I thought he was wonderful. He was the first Catholic president. You know, I, I was so proud to be associated in some way. And I was also there when the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, so that puts it into a bit of perspective for people. It was, it was a big year. It was a great year. By that point, did you consider yourself liberal-leaning in spite of your conservative family, Joe? Not really, no. And I can remember when I came back from the States, because this family that I was living with in Illinois, you know, the rural Illinois was pretty conservative as well. And I got very interested in politics, and I can remember reading Time magazine avidly, you know, for the first few years when I came back. So I don't think I was very liberal or left-wing at that point at all, just sort of sucking it all up, you know. And it wasn't until a little bit later that I realized, hey, American foreign policy has done some pretty awful things in Central and South America and about the bases and so on in Australia. I didn't at that point know that there was any implication. In fact, it was really all just getting going at about that point. So how did you make this journey from conservative Catholic upbringing to uh, the kind of liberal presence that you became in the federal parliament here? Well, I certainly worked in a way completely different from most of my allies because I went to university with a lot of the people who were by then ministers in the government. So we were all sort of roughly the same age, you know, mid-40s, late-40s, 50s. 
And so one guy, he, he accused me. He said, you've come from a farming family. I know who you were handing out how to vote cards for in 1964. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that was the National Party. Very conservative. And so I was able to say, well, at least my journey, I think, Senator, has been in a direction that I'm proud of, you know, from far right maybe to far left. On the other hand, there are many ministers in this government who can, I could say were student leaders and radical leaders in the Vietnam moratorium movement, for example, who were on, on the left and now they've gone to the right, you know, so what kind of a movement is that? So I was proud that I'd moved in the opposite direction from a lot of my colleagues in the parliament. So I think the Vietnam War was one thing which turned my mind to think about the repercussions of our foreign policy and what were we doing just slavishly following American foreign policy. That was the first example of it that was so clear. And then I think at about the same time when I went to the Vietnam marches in Australia, I noticed these Quakers and they were marshalling the crowds and keeping people in order. At that stage I was teaching very conservative. I didn't want to be seen on the cameras because you might get to school on Monday and find yourself carpeted before the principal. And so I was always in the middle of the crowd, not anywhere on the edges or out the front. I wasn't an organiser in those marches at all, but I learnt quite a lot by observing. And then I met a very special person and we got married in the Quaker meeting house. But it was years, this tussle, would we have children or wouldn't we? And I think actually for me that was really the big thing because I by then was much more aware of the repercussions of our politics and we went travelling. That was the other thing. I did quite a lot of travelling on my own and then with this new partner. And we travelled for about three years and we saw so much overpopulation, pollution and so on and bad use of resources. Well, I was becoming a greenie without realising it. I thought the last thing the world needs is more people. You know, there are too many already, for goodness sake. So we had to really think hard about whether we would go into this parenting thing or not. And that was a six-year discernment time. What year was your first daughter born? My first daughter, Kate, was born in 1979. So what actually got me going was I sort of made a decision, a deal with myself. This is my own personal contract with me, and that is work for social justice, for peace and the environment until I drop dead. Then I can think about producing another couple of human beings to share this planet. I, I just couldn't do it otherwise. I would feel like I was taking too much from planet earth without giving anything back i'm giving two beautiful daughters to the planet but i mean i've got to make sure that we all tread relatively lightly on the planet you know that we don't have a huge ecological footprint that we're going to cause more damage than the good we can do that's all you can do is try and balance up how much damage you're doing how much good you're trying to do so I've gone into bat on lots and lots of causes and had a few little wins along the way, but I'll be in there lobbying and encouraging other people to take action, encouraging people to really participate in the democracy that we've got. It's all relative, but, you know, it's the best of the many systems that are around. So this thing about having children, and I thought I wouldn't be able to look my children in the eye unless I was doing the best I could, A, to prevent nuclear war from happening, and then B, to work for social justice in a very positive way and see to work for the environment because I realised by even early 70s that actually we were in big trouble. About that time, Club of Rome had come out with its report, the Club of Rome, which said, you know, in 30 years, blah, 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 blah. They've just done the 30-year review and what do we find? It's all exactly as they said, only a little bit worse. 
Now, in the Quaker meeting at that time, there were a few very wonderful older people and they fed me plenty of social justice material. So from the time that I started with Quakers, 72 until 79, that was a really good period of learning for me, most of which was overseas, but I was looking I knew what to look for then as I was travelling. I was aware of the interconnection of all of these issues. And the more I saw, the more I realised that I had to make a commitment or I couldn't go into parenting, just couldn't do it. So I've got two gorgeous daughters and they're an absolute joy to me and uh, I'm really thrilled to have that kind of extra dimension in my life. I mean, there's nothing like it. Your kids are great teachers wonderful teachers so it's been a joy but it's also something that I feel very deeply as a responsibility to the planet as well as to those two individual children. Let me get this straight Joel you identified primarily as a Catholic I think in 1964 by 1972 you were attending Quaker meeting what happened in between there when did you stop identifying as Catholic and why did you stop identifying as Catholic? Well now there's a story about Mexico so I did quite a bit of traveling. When I was on my own, I was traveling, well, with a couple of girlfriends, and we went to Mexico. Found myself at the Shrine of Guadalupe, which is a big basilica focused on Mary, and the peasants literally crawl on their knees from the gates of this basilica. They get inside the basilica, and they've taken with them, if somebody in their family needs healing, a little gold replica of an arm or a heart or a liver or a brain, whichever part of the body needs healing. Now, this is at great expense to their families. I'm talking about people who are really poor. And that was probably the first time I had seen a very crowded, poor, Catholic country, and it really pulled me up short. I thought, well, you know, what is all this? Most of my Protestant friends had always teased me and said, well, the Catholics always had the best places. Their churches are always on top of the hill, you know, and that kind of thing. And I thought, right, that's when I really saw what they were on about, you know. The Catholic Church as an institution is extraordinarily wealthy and very dominating, dictatorial to its peasants. And about that time, I mean, it was, you know, I'd taken my Catholicism very seriously. Here I am at about the age of 20, absolutely virginal, I mean, you know, sounds pretty funny to young people now but there I am living out my Catholic ideals and suddenly see overpopulation you know and think there's this Pope in Rome and he's telling these people that they can't use birth control that really bothered me you know the poverty the dictums about birth control and so on too many people having too many babies got to love them babies but there's too many people having too many babies got to love them babies but it's out of control and it's a sing-along too many people having too many babies got to love them babies very important part got to love them babies but there's too many people having too many babies got to love them babies but it's out of control. Try it. Too many people having too many babies. Got to love them babies. But there's too many people having too many babies. Got to love them babies. But it's out of control. Had to mandy time on their hands. Hyperactive glands. Room to expand. When they began begatting, they begatted to excess. Eschewing tactics, prophylactic, now we're in a mess Because there's too many people having too many babies Got to love them babies, but there's too many people having too many babies Got to love them babies, but it's out of control 
When Columbus sailed the ocean, we were 400 million industrial revolution, still under a billion. The Great Depression hit 2.1 billion, now we're pushing the millennium, 6 billion and counting. Civil wars rumbling, refugees stumbling, forests falling, deserts creeping, traffic crawling, resources depleting. Shoppers shopping for pleasures fleeting when there's too many people having too many babies. Got to love them babies, but there's too many people having too many babies. Got to love them babies, but it's out of control. Once I lived in the city, it was too big and noisy, so I moved to the country to stop and smell the roses. All my city friends joined me and put up nice new houses. Now it's too big and noisy, think I'll move to the country. Some say no, 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 it's not the population, it's consumption, pollution, unequal distribution. I say that's so, but it's a simple equation. Population times pollution equals no solution. When there's too many people having too many babies, got to love them babies. But there's too many people having too many babies, got to love them babies. But it's out of control. If you are a child, welcome to the world. This blue-green earth is your gift by birth. May you rock to its rhythms, may you sing its anthems. And if you have babies, please stop at two. Because there's too many people having too many babies. Got to love them babies, but there's too many people having too many babies. Got to love them babies, but it's out of control. Too many people having too many babies. Got to love them babies, but there's too many people having too many babies. Got to love them babies, but please stop that too. And this was just after Vatican II as well. So there'd been a bit of an opening up, but still not enough for what I was beginning to think. So I just thought, well, I'll give the Catholic Church a break here. And I did, and I looked around, and I didn't find any other Christian church that was better or even as good as, I thought, the Catholic Church in terms of being aware of the poverty, but... I think dealing with it in rather a patronising way and making sure that there was a fair bit of conversion going in with it, you know. So it was not till 1972 that a friend of mine said, I think you might like this Quaker meeting. Come along to a Quaker meeting with me. So I went along to a Quaker meeting with her at the beginning of 1972. I kept going and she disappeared off into something else. So it was um, a case of really feeling at home straight away. I loved the silence. I loved the people and... The lack of ritual was quite refreshing after all the ritual in the Catholic Church. I just felt that it was something genuine. And these people seemed to be really active way beyond their numbers, would, you would expect. You know, they were into this, that and the other thing in this little community of Perth. It's not a very big city. So you pretty quickly figure out, you know, who's in the social justice movement, who's in the peace movement. And there they were. And I was really inspired by that. So if I understand correctly, Joe, you got involved in, motivated into social justice by your Catholic upbringing, but then felt it didn't go far enough? Is that a fair way of saying it? 
Yeah, I think that'd be fair. That'd be that's a very good way of putting it. And then once I did come into Quakers, and and we were actually married under the care of the meeting, the meeting house that I still attend, and deliberately chose to live a few blocks away from, so I could walk there. That's a lovely part of my life. But then I went, or we went to London Yearly Meeting in 1974, and that was really quite an extraordinary experience. There were 1,200 Quakers, and I'd never even been to a business meeting in Perth. It was very new. Just asked as an attendant, could we go along to Yearly Meeting in York because there we were, and they said, sure, come along. And there were 1,200 people and a clerk who could pick up the sense of the meeting, and all these silences in between. I was so impressed. It was a great way of doing business. I thought. How did that compare to what you experienced as a senator? The way of doing business did that really rankle dealing with the federal system here in Australia? Well, that's pretty funny, really, because you start the day with the Lord's Prayer in the Senate, and you know they don't really take that very seriously, and so it's all very formal. And there is a whole fat book of the rules of the Senate, rules of engagement, I used to call it, and I looked at it and thought, no way am I ever going to learn all those rules and regulations. If I learn all of that, I won't have time to do anything else. And as well as the written rules, there are all the unwritten rules, which are even more important. You know, all the conventions of the Senate. You do this, but you don't do that. You know, you wait for this, and you, somebody else has to go first here. And so I just sort of blundered along, really. And in a few cases, I made mistakes, but. I don't mind making mistakes, you know. A bit like you say with the friendly vote dancers, it's quite healthy and refreshing to make mistakes. Of course, you learn a lot from them, and so I found it really stultifying. It's one of the most adversarial workplaces you can imagine. I think the legal profession, and I've been in court a few times on civil disobedience charges. The legal profession is pretty intimidating as well. But the Senate, you can imagine, walking in all by yourself, no political colleagues. It was pretty scary, but I quite like a challenge. So away I went. You must have had some people to help support you to help muddle your way through the federal system. Did you have any particular allies? Did you have a big staff eventually? No, not like、uh, senators in the United States. The staff is three to three and a half people, so <laughs> really you don't get a lot of staff. But we had lots of volunteers, and I think that made a difference. You know, there were lots of people that we could call on in different areas, particularly as the portfolios were expanding. We had to have somebody who could help us on this and somebody who could help us on that, and that made a huge difference. But the actual staff was four people at the most, and then we shared salaries, and I put my money into the pool, and we shared, and we made it. Into five or six, or sometimes seven, but officially there were only ever four positions. The taxation department was quite challenged by us because we said we don't want to just spend something that's called the electoral allowance as well as a salary. The electoral allowance is meant to be just a little bit extra that goes into the senators' or members' pockets for things like you know bouquets of flowers to little old ladies who turn a hundred and that kind of thing. Well, I said. To the taxation commissioner, I'm not going to be spending my money like that. I'm going to be spending it on educational materials, and I'm the only one in the parliament doing this. And this is a job I've been given by the people of Western Australia to do. I was elected to work on these issues, so this is my obligation. And we need to produce a lot of educational materials, so we would like to put that money towards those educational purposes. I don't want to be taxed at the personal tax rate because I'm spending all of this money on community education and doing my job. Now is that okay? And they said, "Oh, well, nobody's ever asked us that kind of question before." So it was interesting. 
when I went into the parliament, some people said, oh, so-and-so will be really good to help. You know, Senator so-and-so is really strong on this issue or Senator so-and-so is really strong on that issue. And I found, to my disappointment, actually, that most people are hooked into their party political machine and they didn't really want to be allies very much at all. And particularly in the case of the women, I really expected that there'd be some women's solidarity. I mean, we had a picture taken once, you know, all the women senators, because there weren't very many at that time. And there are a lot more now. The women senators and then women members of the House of Reps and senators. And, you know, we numbered about 20 out of the whole lot, you know, at that point. And I thought there'd be a bit more solidarity. But most of them, to my disappointment, were as entrenched in party politics as were the men. And a couple were downright mean to me, I'd have to say. (laughs) But I did find that somebody from the Liberal Party, which is a very conservative party, and someone from the Labor Party found out when I had been declared a senator, rather than a senator-elect, which, I mean, I knew I'd been elected on December the 1st, 1984, because the numbers were all right, but it had to be actually declared by the Electoral Commission. That didn't happen till mid-January, and then I didn't take up office until July the next year. So there were all those months, no staff, no salary, but people think, oh, she's been elected, great, we can get her to do this, this and this. So I was in that invidious position of being senator-elect. Now, what happened was very interesting, is that one person, senator from the conservative side and one person from the Labor side, within five minutes of each other and within about ten minutes of the poll being declared, yes, there's Joe Valentine as a senator, they both rang and offered help. And I thought, wow, this is really something. And I thought, hmm, are they going to expect favours back? If I take advantage of their kind offer of help to go in and use their offices and so on, in the meantime, when I didn't have an office, they knew better than I did what I wouldn't have, you see, at that stage. And I thought, then I'm going to be beholden to them. They're going to be able to call favours back. So I rang them both back and said, look, thank you so much for your kind offer, but no thank you. And that was good. I thought that was good. I, I felt that I had to keep myself a separate and a little bit distant so that I could be my own person and not beholden to anybody. And I didn't go in there expecting to make friends with anybody. But I did find some colleagues on particular issues in cross-party groups. For example, Amnesty International is a great group and we had a really active group of parliamentarians from all parties, upper house and lower house. And that's because Amnesty International doesn't work on any domestic issues. So there was no local point scoring that they could actually get. If they were a good member of Amnesty International, well, nobody really knew or cared because it was all about some foreign country, you know, or some political prisoners somewhere else. You never work on your own country's issues in Amnesty International, which is one of its rules. And it was founded by a Quaker. So that was a very good group to belong to, actually, very good group. And then I was in the Christian Parliamentary Fellowship, a lot of cross-party groups. I joined them all because I thought this is a way to let other people see that I haven't got horns, you know, that I'm not totally out there and unable to be talked to or totally useless. I wanted people to see that there were points of contact because I believe that you work from your common points and gradually you might be able to influence someone. So I had a lot of colleagues in that sense, people I could work with, but I didn't really make good friends deliberately. And, you know, there was always a point beyond which, you know, you sort of didn't go. I mean, I didn't go out to one-on-one dinners with other senators and members. It was always sort of in a group and always with a task in mind. But if there was a cocktail party, sure, I'd go along and I'd have an agenda. And it was either I'd novel the Prime Minister and say, because he was just going off to meet Ronald Reagan, for example. So cocktail party. Okay, Bob Hawke, this is what I want you to say to Ronald Reagan. This is the list of things that I've been asked by my position here to ask you to represent to Ronald Reagan. Of course, he wouldn't do it, but 
I felt I had to say it to him, you know? So I had a lot of fun, actually, finding opportunities to speak truth to power, as I thought, to say what I felt I had been elected to say, knowing maybe that it would fall on deaf ears, but also knowing that there was a possibility that it might reach somewhere sometime. For example, the International World Court had a 10-year campaign to get nuclear weapons declared illegal. We worked on that with friends in New Zealand who put that forward and we couldn't get our foreign minister to agree to it. And this was a Labour foreign minister. He'd say, well, what if the 15 judges on the International Court of Justice say nuclear weapons are okay? What if? And we said, no, they're not going to. They just can't because these are weapons of mass destruction. That won't happen. Believe us, that won't happen. So Australia should be in there really arguing for this case to be taken to the International Court of Justice. Well, it didn't happen in my time, but to my amazement, a couple of years after I resigned, government's policy did change. Australia went there. I heard the Minister for Foreign Affairs making a speech, and I thought, this sounds really familiar. And it was my words. You know, he was using a lot of my arguments to say why Australia should be in there pushing for the International Court of Justice to come down with a verdict about the illegality of nuclear weapons. So you never know where things are going to end up. You don't go in there, or I didn't go in there, thinking I was going to make huge changes or have major successes. And my friend Peter Jones, a fellow Quaker who was my research officer for years, used to keep reminding me, we are called to be faithful, not to be successful. You know, we're called to make a witness, to speak out what needs to be said or what we think people have asked us to speak in this place, but you don't really expect to be heard. You mentioned earlier, Joe, that you had a couple small successes. Could you mention any of them? Well, one was on Antarctica, which was a lovely cause to work with environmental groups on. We were trying to get a ban on mining in Antarctica, one of the last wilderness places on the planet. You know, there's scientific exploration happening there. And as one of our friends says, look, if you don't cooperate together in Antarctica, you freeze separately. And I thought that was kind of a nice image. You know, we can cooperate globally about anything if we choose to. And we've got an international postal service. It's a good case of cooperation. We fly aeroplanes backwards and forwards around the world, mostly without accidents. We can cooperate if we want to. So in Antarctica, we felt that this wilderness really needed to be preserved. And so it was a great joy to work with environment groups on that issue. Now, the governing Labour Party at that stage had not come down on a position. They were about to go off to an international conference. And we were saying, well, what's Australia's position going to be? I found a conservative senator who had been to Antarctica. Now, anybody I know who's been to Antarctica, and quite a few Australians have, because we've got a base down there and, you know, we're quite close, relatively speaking. But anybody who's been to Antarctica totally falls in love with it, and they can't bear to think of it being despoiled. So here we have conservative senator who'd been to Antarctica. Now, this was a person who'd been, he considered me a real enemy. He'd been really saying she shouldn't be here and what does she know about this? You know, I got a lot of abuse in the Senate, actually. A lot of stuff was not very nice. And he was one of my chief provocateurs, if you like. So I went to him this day and I said, I know you've been to Antarctica. This is coming up. You know, has the Liberal Party got a position on Antarctica? And I said, hey, you know, the Labour Party hasn't got a position on this yet. Here's an opportunity for you guys. So away he went. He lobbied his Conservative colleagues. He got them to make a position 
Republic on Antarctica before the governing Labor Party. And a day or two later, I put up a matter of public importance, which is a special debate that you can call for after question time in the Senate, saying what we thought needed to be said on Antarctica. So actually, I was responsible for the Liberal Party just about trumping the Labor Party with a policy on Antarctica. At the very last minute, what did the Labor Party do but think, oh, well, we can't let the Conservatives get in there before us. So by the time I put up the debate, they had come to a position. So move them along. And that meant that we could go to that international conference then and argue very strongly for this 50-year ban on mining in Antarctica. Now, that isn't really satisfactory. But at that time, that was a pretty good outcome. Are there any other victories that you'd like to speak about? I'd like to say that I put up several private members' bills which created debate. They produced lobbying points for the community. One was about war toys being advertised on television, particularly children's television where programs are designed around selling stuff, that we were trying to disengage children's programs from a lot of commercial advertising. And then another one was about conscientious objection to particular conflicts. This was after the first Gulf War in 1990-91, where we knew that there were Arab, Muslim, Australians in the armed forces who didn't really want to go to Iraq then, probably didn't want to again later, but it became a real talking point. And then somebody who went absent without leave from the Australian Defence Forces then knew he could come to our office and get a lot of support for the stand that he was taking. And another one was about paying for war taxes, so we put up a private members' bill about a peace tax instead of 10% of your taxes generally going into the so-called Defence Department. So things like that were useful lobbying points, but of course a private members' bill doesn't actually get very far. You don't expect it to get through unless it's about something that everybody agreed to but had just forgotten to legislate about. But that was useful work, no doubt. And I think the most useful work I did, though, was to be like a catalyst for community activism and encouraging people in the community to take action and giving them feedback about the petitions that they'd put in and helping people to feel that it was worth lobbying politicians. It's really important for people not to give up on the process. I think that while you were a senator, you actually engaged in civil disobedience and went to jail? Yes, that's true. I think I've been arrested five or six times, actually twice in one day in Belgium, which was going overboard a little bit, at the gates of NATO headquarters after a march from The Hague to Brussels. That was after I was a senator, though. That was more recently. But when I was a senator, I was arrested several times for trespass, for example, at Pine Gap, the big American base in the middle of Australia, and I spent several days in jail a year or so after that. By then, I was brave enough to take on the legal system by myself. I said, no, I don't need a law. So I went in there and represented myself and had quite a bit of fun doing that. Another case was here when I was uh, arrested at Fremantle, close to where we are now. I handcuffed myself to the rails of a warship as it was pulling in, and it was a British warship, actually, with Prince Andrew on board. So it tied in very nicely with the people who said, oh, she's just anti-American. I've always said, look, I'm not anti-American. I don't like their government's foreign policies, but I have a great affinity with Americans and America. It was important not to just have a go at American warships, you see. So this was a British warship, possibly carrying nuclear weapons, but they have this policy also of neither confirming nor denying whether they've got nuclear weapons on board. But Prince Andrew was on board, and it was when he was still married to Fergie, a 
blazing red head, and I had a bit more red hair in those days myself, so the reporters had a bit of a field day. They said, ah, two redheads on the wharf, one waiting for her prince and the other one getting arrested, you see. So I handcuffed myself and had a placard which quoted Mount Batten. Another one was up at a uranium mine on Aboriginal country in the Northern Territory and I spent a week in jail in solidarity with the Mirar people, the traditional owners of that land. And that was more recently too, since I was not a senator anymore. breaking of the law, have you been supported by your political party, the Greens or the Nuclear Disarmament Party, and by the Quaker meeting? Well, I was certainly supported by whoever was around in politics at the time. I did have a letter from a Quaker actually saying, not sure that you should be doing this, but mostly people were supportive, I think. Not necessarily all that overtly, I have to say. You know, sometimes I've thought, you know, have wished for a little bit more support from the Quaker meeting, I must say, but then... You see, I think the Quakers sometimes forget the tradition of people being in jail and dying in jail and being killed for their beliefs in the very, very early days. So I wasn't doing anything nearly as dramatic and bold and brave as they were doing, and my life was not at risk. You know, generally speaking, and this is what I kept saying to people, we have a privilege in this country because we can speak our mind generally without fear of being shot or left to rot in jail, so shouldn't we be availing ourselves of that opportunity? In other countries, people are literally dying for the privileges that we just take for granted. So sometimes I've wished for a little bit more support, I guess, from the Quaker meeting, but I know that this is often the case, that people who are out there in front a little bit perhaps make other Quakers feel a little bit uncomfortable. So that's okay. I'm not happy about that, but prepared to cop that, if you like. 
and of late, I'm maybe I've quietened down a bit, but here I am co-clerking a meeting, so maybe I'm not doing my job as an activist quite well enough because I always used to think when I was in the parliament or as an activist, if you're not attracting criticism, hey, what are you doing? If you're too quiet or you're not bringing out the adversaries in some way or another, you're letting everybody be too comfortable? We're here to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, maybe. It just so happens right after Ronald Reagan was elected that I did a trip to Europe. I met a guy in Italy who asked me what I thought about that election. And when I gave him my answer, he said he thought it was ridiculous that Jimmy Carter had ever been elected. And it made absolute sense that Ronald Reagan would be elected over him because Jimmy Carter was an honest person. And you cannot be honest and effective in government. So you should never elect an honest person, whatever their other morals are. How did you feel about your conflict of morals? And maybe you could have gotten more done if only you'd been a little bit more duplicitous while you were in government. Well, maybe. I think that's a very sad comment, but I understand it. And, you know, he only lasted one term because he was a good man, unfortunately. Well, I wasn't ever tempted to be duplicitous, I must say, to do deals behind people's backs or to take bribes or anything like that. I think people knew that they just weren't going to get anywhere suggesting anything like that to me. I was seen as being pretty straight, I guess, really, and maybe to some extent not worth bothering about. I mean, what would people have bribed me about? You know, I couldn't deliver any favours, really. I was on the outer, definitely on the outer, which was a good place to be. Now, I think that if you look at the Greens in West Germany, for example, where they got so strong and they were so big in numbers that they then became part of a coalition government, then they were in big trouble because they had to take on some ministerial responsibilities. Joska Fischer had that terrible decision about whether to go with NATO into the Bosnian crisis for example, it tore the German Greens apart. What could they do? They couldn't please everybody or anybody, really, deep down about that, if they really are committed to non-violence. And yet, could they stand aside and see the Kosovos, for example, being ripped to shreds? You know, it was a very, very difficult position. So I was very glad to be one person on the outer and not to be in a position where I had to make those really, really difficult calls. Well, Joe, I really wish that I had another hour or two to interview you here. There's so much that you've lived through and done and made a difference in this country. Are you thinking of maybe coming over and being a senator in the United States? That would be wonderful. (laughs) Well, perish the thought. No, I considered getting out of politics a lot more carefully than I considered getting in. Getting in was a bit accidental. It just something that happened in 1984. I was the right person in the right place at the right time. A woman with a couple of young children appealed to people who were concerned about the nuclear annihilation possibilities and so on. But getting out, I planned it really carefully, made sure there was a party in place and people who could take over and so on. I'm very glad I did it, but I'm very glad to be out of it as well. Thank you for your work then, and thank you for your continuing work. It's a pleasure, mostly. And thank you for your witness. I love the way you're dancing the world together for peace. It's a wonderful way of expressing the peace testimony. So I'm very grateful to you for doing that. And I've enjoyed it enormously, you being here. Thank you, Joe. You've been listening to an interview with Joe Valentine, who was the first Australian Green Party senator. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, where you'll also find a number of links and other information about this program. Music that has been featured in this program includes The Times They Are a Changin' by Bob Dylan, Peace Is by Fred Small, 
Too Many People, also by Fred Small, and Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around by Charlie King. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher call for you than this To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness